All right. Well, before we slide right. on to the uh, the finance section, you'd mentioned the one of the mottos for the Navy being honor, courage, and commitment. Which of those three words is your strong suit, Doctor Rosenthal? Boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> well, hopefully, you're good at all three of them. Yeah. <laughs> that's the goal, right? You need all three. That's <laughs> yes, all three of them, uh, since they're the core value. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I think. Uh, I think honor. I don't know. You seem like a pretty honorable guy. Yeah. I think yeah. Honor probably. Uh, <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I stumped him. I love it. Finally, <laughs> finally got him after all these years in school. I don't know. You know the the other services. You can have... say it depends. You can just say that. You said that like two hundred times in school to me. You could always say it depends. How did I not use that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Got me totally off guard there. Uh, okay. <laughs> the other services have different core values, and uh, both the Army and Air Force have a core value that is pretty similar, different words. One of them is selfless service, and the other one is service before self uh, as part of their core values. And I think that's, that's another key one that um, is very important as a military officer because many times you're going to be doing things that you think, what am I doing? Because you wouldn't have chosen to do those things probably. And uh, they tend to bring out the best in, in the individuals, I think. But yeah, I don't know that I can pick one from, from amongst the honor, courage, and commitment. All right. All right. I'd probably go with honor. All right. Okay. We'll take honor. Honor for, honor for the win. <laughs> Welcome to Two Five Physios. The podcast where Tyler Smith and Jordan Spradlin, two doctors of physical therapy, discuss their journey towards financial independence, self-development, PT research articles, and host in-depth interviews with physios in the field. And welcome back. You're listening to the Two Five Physios podcast. We have a, another interview, a Two Five interview today, bringing on our former professor at San Diego State, Dr. Michael Rosenthal. He's currently in Nebraska, not at San Diego State, but he'll kind of get into the backstory and kind of his journey through PT for us in a second here. So we'll just bring you straight on, Rosie. If you had to give us your backstory of where you went to school, your, I guess, a brief <laughs> military overview and what branches you served in. How would you do it? All right. Well, thanks for having me. It's fun catching up with you guys and good to be on your, on your program. So mm -hmm. it's cool that you guys are doing this. Uh, so my background was I grew up in a very small town in central Nebraska, about uh, 1,300 people. We had a couple stop signs, no stop lights, I don't believe. But <laughs> I went to a small liberal arts college in Nebraska for my undergraduate named Doan College. It's down by Lincoln, where the university is. And then from there, I applied to physical therapy schools, and I got accepted into the Army Baylor Physical Therapy Program and went to physical therapy school then down in San Antonio, Texas. At Fort Sam Houston, I was one of the Navy students uh, in a group that was mostly Army students. About uh, 16 of the 21 classmates were Army students. There were three Navy students and a couple of Air Force. And from there, ended up 
spending 25 years, almost 25 years in the Navy, serving in a number of different locations, both on the East Coast and West Coast, really far exceeded any expectations I had of a, of a career, what a career in the military was going to be like, or what a career as a PT was going to be like. So that military physical therapy experience was, was an amazing opportunity one after the other that while I initially went into it thinking I was going to get my free education from the military and then leave after the obligated period of service, which was a total of five years. After five years, I realized that continuing to serve in the Navy was really the best opportunity I, I could have envisioned. And it just continued to be that way year after year for what turned out to be about 24 and a half years. So once I finished my career in the Navy and decided to retire, I was fortunate to be stationed in San Diego. I'd already been working a little bit at San Diego State teaching one class, and they had a full-time faculty position to open up that I was fortunate to get hired into. And so I taught at San Diego State from 2016 until just this past year, 2020, uh, where I was a full-time faculty member doing research and teaching orthopedic content. And then just about three months ago, I departed San Diego State and moved to a very similar position here in Omaha, Nebraska, at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where I'm doing a lot of the same stuff, teaching, doing some research, and I'm doing uh, clinical work as well on a weekly basis. So that's kind of the, the full circle. <laughs> that's, <'cause> that's, <laughs> that's perfect. Wow. That's, okay. that's a wonderful recap. Um, yeah, so you mentioned that you started to work at San Diego State even while you were still serving in your last year. Is that how that worked? Why, why did you decide to do that? Were you kind of setting yourself up for the next stage in your life? So I had been teaching um, part-time with a variety of different programs since about 2005, when I, which was shortly after I had finished my sports residency and doctoral, doctorate of science program. So I kind of knew that I wanted to teach from uh, after I'd been a PT for about six or seven years, I'd done a lot of clinical instructor work. And then once I completed the residency and had my doctorate of science, it opened some doors for me to teach. I taught at the uh, Rocky Mountain University Doctorate of Science PhD program, teaching an online hybrid class. I did that from about 2005 till 2013 or so. And then I knew Dr. Rao, the program director at San Diego State, from working in the sports uh, section. And when he told me, hey, he was starting this program at San Diego State, I said, I know someone that would be interested to teach at San Diego State, by, by the way. And so uh, that opened the door. I was already stationed there. And uh, San Diego State was flexible to allow me to teach in the evenings after I was done with my primary military duties. So I just taught one class a year uh, for those three or four years before I retired from the Navy. And has it always been musculoskeletal MSK or did you <clears throat> teach other things throughout? So I taught differential diagnosis. That was the class I've taught since the first year that San Diego State had a program. I taught differential diagnosis, which incorporated 
electrophysiological testing, radiology, and um, that was the only other course besides the musculoskeletal one and two courses that I was directly responsible for. You obviously felt pretty comfortable with that because in the military, you have that privilege of ordering imaging and all that kind of thing. So, Yeah, the military practice arena was was a a very easy connection to those content areas Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly as a pt in the military you have opportunity to practice in a lot of different kind of specialty areas most of it though is outpatient orthopedics uh, sports related stuff a lot of post-operative care and like you mentioned pts nowadays have the opportunity to order imaging, order lab studies. Um, and PTs have that as soon as they come into the military now with the, with the doctoral degree. When I came into the, when I got my PT degree in the early nineties, it was a master's degree. And back then in order to get privileges to order imaging, order medications or order lab studies, you had to do some other post-professional training that the military provided. So that's a little bit smoother of a process now with our entry-level degree being a doctoral degree, but the military practice setting was very good for that. And over the years, they've found that PTs having those clinical privileges are very beneficial for the healthcare system and for the patients. It, It doesn't result in a misuse of imaging or inappropriate ordering of imaging or ordering of medications. PTs are usually very conscientious about ordering those and are very conscientious about the cost related to ordering those things as well. So it's, it's been very good for the military healthcare system for PTs to provide those services. Yeah. Being a student in your differential diagnosis class, I know you provided us a paper that touched on that exactly that point where they looked at physicians and PTs in the emergency room and how often they ordered and how often it was actually needed and how much money that we saved overall for them when PTs had those ordering images. So, I mean, you touched on a bunch of good points about how the military provided options to further your education with electrophysiology certifications and your sports residency and your doctorate. Do you feel like most PTs in the military have those opportunities if they want them? They all have the opportunity to apply for residencies, uh, Mm -hmm. fellowship, PhD training. Each of the services has a little different way in which they have those opportunities on an annual basis. And a lot of that's based off probably just the overall number of PTs. So if you look at kind of the number of post-professional training opportunities, for example, that the Navy has compared to the total number of PTs in the Navy. Mm. Ratio-wise, it's probably pretty similar to what the Air Force and the Army has. Uh, The Army probably, if anybody has more opportunities kind of per capita, it would be the Army. And they largely uh, are the leaders, I would say, in, in that realm because they For example, with the sports residency, which is now a fellowship program at West Point, the Army is the lead service in managing that program 
in collaboration with Baylor University. And the same thing down at San Antonio, they have a orthopedic manual physical therapy fellowship down there. Same thing. It's the Army in coordination with Baylor University, and they have, in addition to two or three Army students a year, they usually have one Navy, and I think they still have an Air Force student every year as well. So there's lots of opportunities for it, really on an annual basis. They also have what's called a military musculoskeletal residency program, which is a hybrid education program, and that's pretty accessible for new PTs to, to be a part of that as well. Once you complete those residencies, then it sets somebody up to apply for one of those fellowship programs, either the sports fellowship or the orthopedic manual therapy fellowship. And I also mentioned the PhD programs. The Navy, not every year, but I would say at least every three to four years selects one PT typically to go get a PhD. Uh-huh. The Army, probably it's, I would say, unless it's changed in the last few years, but the Army probably picks one PT every year to go get a PhD. Uh, so a little more opportunity for, mm-hmm. for that level through the Army, I would say. I remember you were saying that you always wanted to get that PhD and they just you weren't able to get it in the Navy. Yeah, you know, those things, I believe things usually work out the way they do for a reason, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, even though it wasn't what you necessarily had drawn up in your own playbook. And for me, I had had aspirations of getting more education. And, you know, quite honestly, I didn't really know the difference that much in, as far as what the differences were between a PhD and a doctorate of science program. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went to a number of faculty that had their PhD and asked them the pros and cons, and and they felt strongly that if somebody's got a terminal degree, whether that's a doctorate of science, a doctorate of education, or a PhD, as long as they've got a strong clinical background and other uh, strong professional attributes, they would have no problem eventually moving into academia. So Mm -hmm. it turned out better than I thought. Of course. (laughs) And how would you kind of uh, describe that transition from the clinic to more of the academic and professorial life at San Diego State? Was there something that you weren't necessarily prepared for at the time, or how did you find that transition in general? The universities have actually kind of a lot of similarities to the military. They're large organizations. There's quite a few levels in that organization. And I think anytime you're working in a big organization, things move at a slower pace than you would like them to. It's kind of like if you're working at a large healthcare system, USC's Mm -hmm. healthcare system versus a private practice, you can make change occur at that private practice on Tuesday if you don't like how things are going on Monday. Probably not going to be able to do that in a large healthcare setting. So from that standpoint, there were a fair number of similarities, I think, between the academic world and the military, as far as kind of the bureaucracy, the levels, that sort of thing. Probably the thing that was maybe a bigger surprise was, you know, most of my teaching up until that point had been teaching one class a semester. But when you're teaching 
a class a semester and helping with other classes, there's a lot more time that goes into preparing for those classes day after day after day mm-hmm. uh, that I don't think I had the full appreciation of when I was just doing one class a year type of thing. It's kind of easy to spread that out and get ready for that, but it was a little more time consuming. And then certainly to balance that with the research demand also adds, adds to that complexity because it's easy to stretch yourself thin and over obligate yourself to one area and it comes at the expense of the other area frequently. Yeah. I already feel that way with just teaching one lab. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> yeah. Jordan is the, the Jared Brown of San Diego state. Now. Uh-huh. That's what I call myself. <laughs> teaching. Uh, that's awesome. Very good. I want to quickly touch on, we had just uh, presented the article on blood flow restriction last week that we had completed at San Diego State together. Um, but I know you had been doing you know, research with the cohort below us. Is there something that you're still, are you going to still finish that even though you're at UNMC right now? Or how's that research kind of you know, dovetailing into your new job in a whole new state? Yeah, I was very fortunate. You know, San Diego State is a great research environment because in large part, the requirement of the DPT students to, to do a research study. So in addition to the study that you're, group worked on with me on the quadriceps EMG activity. We have one study that we're wrapping up on EMG activity in the shoulder girdle musculature. Hopefully we'll have that manuscript submitted in May, right about the time that that class is getting ready to graduate or shortly thereafter. And then we also have a couple of other studies that we did at San Diego State. One was looking at changes in squat symmetry or weight-bearing symmetry when they did BFR with the cuff on one leg versus both legs versus no cuff at all. And that was actually done by one of the graduate students who's now up at University of Idaho doing his PhD. So we need to get that one written up. And then another one that was done at San Diego State was looking at blood flow restriction in individuals with non-acute patellar tendinopathy. It was a small pilot study. We had about 11 subjects that went through it. They did BFR twice a week with leg extensions, open chain leg extensions, and then what was a static squat or kind of a static lunge type of position. And we measured their patellar tendon stiffness using an ultrasound measurement technology called shear wave elastography. We measured their knee extension strength on the biodex, and we measured their patient-reported outcome measure. And what we found was we measured them at intake at three weeks, six weeks, and then at 12 weeks. Well, they only did BFR for six weeks. And what we found was at the end of six weeks, their pain was better, and their patient-reported outcome using the visa P outcome measure mm-hmm. were better their strength wasn't better at six weeks. And then from six weeks to 12 weeks, they weren't doing BFR. They weren't coming into the the research lab anymore. They were just told to go back to doing as much as you're comfortable doing. And when we came came back for follow-up at 12 weeks, we saw they continued to get better uh, with continued decreases in pain, improvements in their visa P 
And then at 12 weeks, for the first time, they showed significant improvements in their knee extension strength compared to when they started the study. So it kind of go, it provided a similar conclusion to your study, Tyler, in that it looks like the BFR kind of provides that bridge to get them back on track uh, to being able to do the things that they were doing prior to their symptoms and allows them to kind of close the gap and get back to their previous level of function. So those are the studies we've done thus far that are wrapped up. And then we have one other study that is in the current second year group of students uh, where we looked at the effects of BFR doing single leg heel raises and the static squat. And we looked to see what the immediate effects of that would be on their Y balance test performance. Uh, so they did the Y balance test. They did BFR, those two exercises, did Y balance again, right after the BFR was done. And then we did it again about 15 minutes later to see what sort of changes it might have on, on balance. The thought being, should we use this? Is this information going to influence when we perhaps have patients perform BFR? If it creates some balance instability issues, maybe we should hold it until one of the latter parts of the rehab program, as opposed to setting them up for some perhaps problems early in their rehab program or early in the rehab mm -hmm. session. So we're just starting to analyze that data. Cool. And then here at UNMC, I'm going to continue doing some BFR research as well as there's a rather accomplished uh, ACL research faculty member here by the name of Liz Welsant. So I'm collaborating with her on some of the studies that she's, she's uh, hoping to get started in the near future. I, I'm going to be hopefully just working as part of her team a little bit, as well as doing some more BFR work. Oh, one, one other exciting thing on yeah. the BFR front we just got started is uh, a multi-site study that just got approved with Naval Medical Center San Diego and Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton looking at BFR in individuals with lateral elbow pain. Oh, interesting. Okay. So it's kind of a multi-facility study as well as a little bit of a multidisciplinary study. We've got mm -hmm. PTs and OTs working together on this project. So I'm excited to see how that goes with those environments. Uh, different, different patient population. We'll have some young active duty members and we'll have mm -hmm. some older, under 65 year old, but not active duty individuals. So it's awesome. Oh, man. Did you have any BFR experience practically when you're in the military as well? Or is this kind of like something that you thought just theoretically you wanted to get into research wise later on in your career, but not so much practically early on? So I'm, I'm a little bit of what I would say. I'm a slow adopter of things. <laughs> so that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> so my last assignment in the Navy was the director of rehab at the Naval Medical Center in San Diego. And I was there from mm. early 2010 until I retired in early 2016. During that period is when Johnny Owens mm really started to further develop the technology. The Delphi unit came out and Naval Medical Center San Diego is the West Coast polytrauma amputation rehabilitation center for our wounded service members. Mm -hmm. Well, Johnny was 
leading that initiative at the Center for the Intrepid in San Antonio. And so I would guess it was probably 2000, maybe 11, maybe 12, where some of our staff at Naval Medical Center, Naval Medical Center San Diego became really aware of what Johnny and the team at Center for the Intrepid were doing. So we had some people that went to San Antonio and got some of the training. And uh, not too long after that, we had a few few of our staff that started utilizing it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that kind of piqued my interest. And then as I transitioned to um, academia and started thinking about what did I want to spend time researching, it seemed like uh, an area of interest. I've always been interested in the the exercise side of things from a strength and conditioning standpoint. And so this ties in very well to that. And then probably about six months before I retired, something that really kind of further piqued my interest was the, one of the orthopedic surgeons that I worked with for a long time came to me and he said, Hey, Rosenthal, what's up with this blood flow restriction stuff. <laughs> Why is the orthopedic surgeon coming and asking us about blood flow restriction? Well, he had two patients that day that were post-op patients that came in for a follow-up and told him that they were doing blood flow restriction, not in a PT clinic. Okay. They were doing it at the gym they were going to. Mm. And so, wow. so, you know, there's a lot of these things that we do in rehab are, are getting tried and tested in a lot of different arenas. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of them, they get out there and they get implemented and utilized and they don't have a real strong clinical research background. Mm-hmm. So those were the things that really drew my interest to it. And, and uh, you know, Johnny Owens is uh, doing a great job continuing to promote the research in that arena. And obviously there's a lot of other products coming out on the market now to try to garner people's purchases for that equipment. But I think Owens Recovery Science and Johnny's group are doing a pretty good job at trying to promote the science behind the methodology as well, which we can always use more of that in our field. Have you had a chance to check out the ESPN E60 Alex Smith documentary yeah, about that was, his recovery from the horrible compound uh, fracture that he that suffered. Was a great in one. I have seen that. And from my understanding, maybe it was from listening to the Owens Recovery Science podcast, mm-hmm. somewhere I came upon some video clips that didn't make it into the okay. final mm-hmm. uh, yeah. ESPN document that are probably for those of us in the PT arena, the, some of those things that kind of got left on the cutting mm. room floor, if you will, were perhaps more interesting than what mm. we saw during that documentary. But the yeah. story of that is, is uh, <laughs> amazing, right? Yeah, I, I'm so impressed that he actually got back and mm. well, it was, was pretty effective uh, for his team yeah. for a number of games this year. But yeah, that, that's quite a story. No, I wanted to ask a little bit more about the VFR. I was curious, you're talking about the studies. I know there's a few different protocols for like aerobic resistance training and just like passive or pre-ischemic conditioning. You mentioned static squats or static lunges. What was sort of your thought process behind doing the static instead of like an isotonic? 
So, yeah. So what we had them do, maybe I didn't describe it very well, but they were in like a split squat position. Oh, okay. Kind of like the lunge position. Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. and then from there, they were just dropping their, their center of gravity down into the okay. full lunge position. So they weren't having to step forward and back each time. Okay. They just got in that lunge position and then they kept going up and down for their sets and reps. Okay. All right. That makes sense. So the Um, thought was we picked, we picked one exercise that was a a pretty isolated exercise, mm -hmm. the leg extension for the quadriceps. And then we picked another exercise that had a little more uh, total limb demand for them. Okay. All right. I got a patient of mine that I'm going to try that a little bit with starting tomorrow. (laughs) We'll do it, put it in a clinic. I wanted to ask like, Going back to the military, I mean, 24 years in there, you've definitely seen quite a few things. And as, as you've gone up through the ranks and worked in different capacities, uh, both as an officer and a PT, how do you think your experience changed in, the, in your different roles for someone who is planning on going in, what that might look like? As far as how, how they changed kind of over the years while I was in the military? Yeah. Yeah, it was certainly my aspirations being a PT was just totally focused on taking care of patients. And over time in the military, in order for you to advance and get promoted, you are expected to take on increasing roles of leadership and managerial responsibility. They don't neglect the value and importance of growing your clinical skills and becoming a better clinician, but that's not going to get you promoted as a physical therapist. In order to get promoted, you've got to show that you can be an excellent clinician. That's kind of an expectation. But what else can you do? What else are you going to bring to the organization from a managerial or a leadership standpoint? So they give you those opportunities and it's up to you to kind of accept them develop the skills and, and try to excel in those positions. So you're not ever really put out on an island. Um, there's always people senior to you that kind of help mentor you along the path. Mm-hmm. And that was probably the biggest thing for me was I had been a PT. My first assignment out of physical therapy school, I was at a large medical center in Virginia where I got, a, got to work in a lot of different settings. I did inpatient. I did outpatient. I did wound care. There wasn't much I didn't get exposed to during those four years. And while I was there, they had some kind of branch clinics away from the medical center. And so after you had worked there for a few years, uh, if you showed that you were a dependable and reliable enough person, you were probably going to get sent to in some way, kind of help run that branch clinic. So you started kind of developing some of those managerial skills uh, relatively early on. And then my second tour, I was at the Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland. And for somebody that likes sports, I thought I might have died and gone to heaven there. That That was almost the best job in the United States of America, I believe. Um, that was pretty sweet. Um, so, so being there, I went there as one of two therapists. I was the junior therapist, so I was the assistant department head, which meant I had some increasing amount of 
administrative duties. And um, about a year, year and a half into that, the department had left and the person coming in was junior to me. So I became the head of that department at the Naval Academy. And that as soon as you're put in charge of something like that, uh, I think you, at least my, my feeling was a feeling of a, a great increasing amount of increased amount of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, there were senior officers there that you're kind of, you're, you're part of one big team, if you will. Uh, and, and everybody wants the team to, to uh, excel and, and be successful. So uh, those were the biggest differences was the non-physical therapy demands of a naval officer. While you're a physical therapist, the Navy's priorities are, number one, you're a naval officer. Number two, you're a medical service corps officer. And number three, you're a physical therapist. Well, when I signed the document to go into the Navy, all I was thinking about was number three, which was, I'm going to be a physical therapist. Uh, so you quickly learn that you're a naval officer, which, which means you're expected to uphold the core values of the Navy, which is honor, courage, and commitment, that you're expected to carry out uh, the orders that you're given and, and to effectively kind of manage and lead the other people that you're uh, working with, ultimately focused on the mission of the, the organization. So yeah, it's, it's a, you know, it's a very kind of a hard thing to encapsulate into a short, short uh, statement, but those are the biggest things were the non-clinical uh, expectations, but those were also some of the most rewarding things as well. So I think PTs are very well trained and educated to mm-hmm. excel as a military officer. I'll give you one quick uh, kind of tangent story here. Uh, one of the side duties that you do as an officer uh, in the Navy, at least, is what they call officer of the day. And when you're the OD, you are responsible for being available during that 24 hour period at a hospital. Mm. And from 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. or 5 p.m., it doesn't usually amount to much because the commanding officer is there, the executive officer, all the, all the high-ranking important people are there to manage the ins and outs of the daily chaos that can happen at a hospital. After 5 o'clock, you are the OD. And if somebody's unhappy about something, something doesn't, isn't going right, they call you the OD and you're responsible to figure out what's supposed to be done. You're usually personally not going to be solving the problem, but you got to know who to reach out to. Mm-hmm. And early on in my career, uh, one of the senior officers that kind of mentored us in this, he made a comment and he'd been in the Navy for almost 30 years at that point. He's, he was not a physical therapist. He was a healthcare administrator. And he made a comment to me one day. He said, you know, I don't know what it is about you physical therapists, but he said, if I had to pick who I would want to have as the OD when things go wrong, physical therapists would be at the top of the list. He said, for some reason, you guys do a great job of managing chaos when it happens. And I think it, a lot of it goes back to kind of 
some of the training we get as far as kind of clinical reasoning, differential diagnosis type of things. And we, we can kind of sort out in a, many cases what the real urgent things are from the things that probably aren't that urgent. So those are probably some of the more memorable experiences I had as a naval officer is, yeah, there's a lot of clinical stories I can tell. You guys uh-huh. have been you guys have been <laughs> some of those over the years. Like that. I love it. Officer yeah. of the day, learning how to Officer triage. That's that's super important. Yeah, Thank that's in, in 29 Palms. Um, they were they were talking Lieutenant Hollins I was telling you about him. Yeah. He uh every, every time he was like, Oh man, all right, I'm up, I'm up this time. <laughs> <laughs> it was always a stressful event when it yeah. happened. Yeah. And you, you know, I had to deal with things that I never, never had any thought that I would deal with them, nor did I ever want to deal with them. You have to, if somebody passes away at the hospital, mm-hmm. you have to go take care of the paperwork. You're oftentimes the first person to meet the family members and express your condolences on behalf of the command. If people would die, you would have to sometimes notify people in their chain of command, get the chaplain involved. So, you know, there's a lot of things that definitely don't fit in the job description of a physical therapist. (laughs) When you become a naval officer that you agreed to do your best uh, to do those things. And those are the things that also have a big influence or have some influence with regards to taking on greater levels of responsibility. If, if you can't carry out those things and you keep stubbing your toe and not doing a good job with those things, probably greater levels of responsibility and leadership maybe just aren't the right thing for, for you. So mm-hmm. uh, those are sometimes challenging things, but great opportunities that are afforded to us when we agree to serve as an officer. Quick question. When you mentioned uh, you did a tour in Annapolis, just in general, is there a specific amount of time that in the military a tour lasts for? Is it always three years, always four years, or is that vary depending on what branch you're in or what exactly you're doing? Yeah, great question. Most tours are three years long if they are in the United States. So in the continental United States, which is, is abbreviated CONUS for continental United States, they're three years long. If you have a tour that is overseas in the Navy, if you are by yourself, you don't have spouse or kids, they're typically 18 to 24 months. Whereas if you go overseas with family, they're usually 30 to 36 months. So the only exceptions to those examples in the Navy are the billets or the jobs that we have with the aircraft carriers. And those are two-year billets little bit shorter. The jobs we have with the Navy SEALs, Special Forces communities, those used to be two years, but I believe they've changed those to being three-year billets now. All right. Well, before we slide right. on to the, uh, the finance section, you'd mentioned the, one of the mottos for the Navy being honor, courage, and commitment. Which of those three words is your strong suit, Dr. Rosenthal? Boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> Hopefully you're good at all three of them. (laughs) That's the goal, right? You need all three. (laughs) That's all three of them uh, since they're the core value. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I think, uh, I think honor, I don't know. 
You seem like a pretty honorable guy. Yeah. Honor probably uh <laughs> I, <don't know. laughs> I stopped him. I love it. Finally. Finally got him after all these years in school. I don't know. You know the <laughs> The other services. You could say it depends. You can just say that. You said that like 200 times in school to me. You could always say it depends. How did I not use that? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Caught me totally off guard there. Uh, Okay. The other services have different core values, and both the Army and Air Force have a core value that is pretty similar, different words. One of them is selfless service, and the other one is service before self. Uh, as part of their core values. And I think that's, that's another key one that um, is very important as a military officer, because many times you're going to be doing things that you think, what am I doing? Because you wouldn't have chosen to do those things probably. And uh, they tend to bring out the best in, in the individuals, I think. But yeah, I don't know that I can pick one from from amongst the honor, courage, and commitment. All right. All right. I'd probably go with honor. All right. Okay. We'll take honor. Honor for, honor for the win. <laughs> uh, yeah. So let's talk, let's talk money. So I guess just big question overall. We, we know that the military is, is like a pretty surefire way to reach financial independence. At least that's what we've been hearing in all, all of our research so far. And so for you and your family, how has the military prepared you financially for, for your future and caring for your family and your children. Yeah. Finances, I would say, were a huge consideration of mine early in my career. I grew up in an environment that was not not real financially well off. And so I, I always had that as kind of one of my goals. I wanted to be, you know, not having to be concerned about finances and that sort of thing. And so early on in my career, uh, I had a few, few mentors that uh, kind of talked me through the opportunities. And I started reading a lot of stuff, um, financial related early in my career to try to make wise decisions. And from that point, early in my career, I just made it a, made it a uh, kind of definite that I was going to be saving money and Fortunately, my wife is probably uh, somewhat unique in that she hates shopping. Found a what? Good one. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, might be, that might be the key to financial. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. right. Find a frugal wife. And you're I'm going to get in trouble for that, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't play this. Sir. <laughs> no, my, my, wife, uh, my wife was a very financially smart individual who mm-hmm. probably placed a bigger importance on financial independence and saving than I would have. So combining the two of us, uh, that was a pretty big priority early on. We, we wanted to make sure we were done paying off undergraduate loans as soon as possible. So we, we bypassed a lot of luxuries, I would say, the first four or five years driving cars that didn't have air conditioning and uh, things like that. (laughs) Yep. I I can appreciate that. (laughs) No air conditioning uh, on my end. (laughs) Yeah. So we we did a lot of things like that to uh, try to get our loans paid off in the first four years out of PT school. Certainly I had the benefit of 
going through the Army Baylor program, not only do you not have to pay money for that school, but you get paid while you're going to that school. So that created a, that kind of started me off at a different level of mm-hmm. indebtedness than most DPT students, right? Mm-hmm. You're coming out usually with some loans from DPT school, whereas I just had my loans from my undergraduate. My wife actually worked extremely hard and she didn't have any undergraduate loans. So, so that kind of created a very positive landscape for us to transition and pay off our loans pretty early. And then from there, start additional savings plans for us. And you'd mentioned some books that you'd been reading at the time or mentors that you had maybe financially or through your parents or something like that. Is there any names that you can still recall of uh, influential books or things during that time period for you? You know, probably one of the things that we did, that I did the most was uh, we took a Dave Ramsey course that's about financial freedom, financial peace. Um, And then I I read a lot of uh, money magazine type stuff, Kiplinger Finance Magazine. I don't know. it, It was probably the same back then. My understanding is a lot of those are largely funded and published by people that are that stand to gain money businesses that stand to gain money by you investing in those products but i do think it provides more financial literacy than at least i had otherwise so you know i would read the business section every weekend in the newspaper and things like that so those were the things that i used to mm-hmm. to at least kind of help help me chart the course a little bit yeah, so um, something that I've been considering because you know we've been talking over the years. Both Tyler and I are we're putting in our applications. Tyler for the Air Force, myself for the Navy this coming year, and and we've been at least for me, I've been trying to benefit. It's tough to say, okay, I'm I'm putting in twenty years right away to to hopefully get that retirement and that pension, which is one of the best in the world. And I'm wondering when you were when you were going through, were you already committed? Like after that first five years, we're like, all right, you know, I'm going to go do the 20 financially just to get that pension. And how did you weigh that if you wanted to leave early compared to staying in for it? Yeah, the, the 20 year retirement uh, pension thing really wasn't a deciding factor for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned that when I went in, uh, to the program, I only had a five-year commitment, and our thought was we were going to leave after five years and move back to the Midwest. But one good job after the other, and and the opportunity to do the sports residency and things like that just continued to take us another two to three years at a time. Mm-hmm. And then finally, once we got to like thirteen years, for most people, once they get beyond that ten-year mark. Mm-hmm. Then I think it becomes pretty natural to start thinking quite a bit more about what are you going to do to excel over the next 10 years? Um, and that's really kind of when it happened for us is at about that 10-year mark, when I got accepted to the residency, then it became obvious that I was going to be in the residency from years like 11 to 12. And then after I was done with the residency, I had to serve another three and a half years. Well, that takes me to 15. 
then it becomes kind of a no-brainer that it's not like you're going to leave the Navy and go get some job in the civilian sector where you're going to be making so much money that would yeah. it would offset the benefits of a 20-year military retirement. So that's kind of when it became obvious for us is a little bit after that 10-year mark. But we were kind of doing a lot of investment and financial things prior to that mm-hmm. because we weren't counting on the 20-year retirement thing. So I think it's always good to try to, as someone says, control the controllables. I couldn't really control what was going to happen five, 10 years down the road, but I could try to control you know, saving a certain amount of money off next month's paycheck. And, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the approach we tried to take to make sure that things turned out the way we thought they were going to turn out great. We would be even better off if things didn't turn out that way. Well, we were still making plans that we weren't going to be sitting with a big zero in the bank account. Mm -hmm. And then in broad terms, do you know a little bit about how the military pension works? My, my father was a firefighter for 38 years. So I think, I think it's based off like the average of the three highest income years for him is how it gets averaged out for his like monthly paychecks and all that. Is it a similar type of thing in the military? Do you have any background on how the pension system in the military? Yeah. So they've changed it a little bit. They changed it. Um, I think in 2018, I looked this up just recently to try to get a little smarter about it. When I went in, it was exactly what you described. Once you made it to 20 years, anywhere from 20 to 30 years, you could retire with a pension that you would get paid monthly. And at 20 years, that pension would be 50% of your what they call your base pay you would get 50% of your base pay paid to you every month for the rest of your life. And every year after 20 years, it would go up two and a half percent. So if you retired at 21 years, you would get 52.5% of your base pay. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. at 30 years, if someone stayed for 30 years, they would get 75% of their base pay. That's pretty good. But what they were wrestling with, they changed that. That's not the way the military retirement works today. If you or Jordan were to sign on for active duty, your retirement system is what they now refer to as a blended retirement system. And it actually went into effect, I think, on January 1st of 2018. And it has two prongs to it. It has what they call a matching thrift savings plan. So it's a little bit like a lot of civilian employers where you put in some, they'll put in some. And I think that is up to a 5% match. So, and you can start that the first year you're on active duty. So that way, if you decide at seven years, you know, I've had enough, there's not much good surfing station in the army in the middle of Oklahoma, I'm going (laughs) to move back to California. Um, I just need to find an ice rink. That's all I need to find. Anywhere with an ice rink, I'm good. Those are cropping up everywhere nowadays. So, (laughs) uh, you know, Phoenix has two or three ice rinks. You're pretty good anywhere, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, So with this new program, that matching TSP allows you to create some retirement without having to get to 20 years. Because in my period, 
if you went to 17 or 18 years and for whatever reason decided you weren't going to get to 20, when you left, you didn't get anything. There was no matching TSP. There was no monthly payment. There was this thrift savings plan, but it was not a matching thrift savings plan. So in about 2000, they started this thrift savings plan where you can put in from zero to 10% of your pre-tax pay. You can put into this TSP. So that was available for me, but there was no matching from the federal government. So now you'd have this blended matching thrift savings plan. That would kind of be the one side of it. And then the other part is you still get a 20-year retirement pension, but it's now 2% per year that you served. So if you serve 18 years, you don't get 2% times 18 years. You don't get 36%. You would just get your matched thrift savings plan. If you go to 20 years, let's say 23 years, you're going to get 23 years times 2%, so 46% of your, what they call your, your base pay. So it, it's a, still a pretty spectacular retirement yeah. uh, plan that's in place there. And then you have healthcare extending through retirement, like TRICARE, obviously. Yeah, I'll give you the example right now for... I have five kids, my wife, we pay about, I should be able to tell you the exact amount. <laughs> it's, it's under $150 a month. Wow. Okay. That's great. Seven, <laughs> seven people. Seven people. <laughs> I pay 255 for my health savings account. So. Just for Tyler. And With true. a 7,000 deductible. Yeah. Uh, I'll, give you, I'll give you a couple other kind of funny crazy examples to think about. I said we had five kids. Our, our cost for having children, the medical costs that we incurred, I think the most we ever paid was $23. And uh, I had a son that oh, wow. had, one of my kids had to have a knee surgery recently, 62 bucks. It's a cheap surgeon. Do you shop around for that guy or what? <laughs> <laughs> And it turned out good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> did you have to get anesthesia or did you just, yeah. Uh, and they gave him anesthesia too. Yeah. <laughs> Who would have guessed? It's something. All wrapped up within that $62. Oh, that's, amazing. Um, that's amazing. So yeah, it's really good uh, healthcare. I think like any healthcare system, it's probably going to become a little more expensive over the years, but mm. as compared to our civilian healthcare costs, it's, unbelievable it's almost too good to too good to believe right yeah um so yeah you you have while you're on active duty you basically have free medical care free dental care and family members have extremely good access to those services as well mm-hmm. so the pay starting off as an as a new pt in the military right out of pt school the pay might be a little less than what you would get uh, in some civilian jobs, but probably once you balance out mm-hmm. all the different components, you basically get three monthly pay lines, if you will. One of them is your basic pay. The second one is what they call your B- BAS, basic allowance for subsistence. 
and it's $260 a month, essentially, and it's non-taxed. And then you get what's called your basic allowance for housing, and that is not taxed either. So you're only getting taxed on your basic base pay. Mm-hmm. So when you start calculating all the, the tax differences, you're probably pretty close to getting the same amount of pay as you would as a, a new grad somewhere. And military pay increases every couple of years. You get cost of living allowances. But just to give you a quick example, if you were to start on active duty in the Navy today as a new PT within your first year out of PT school, your basic pay would be $4,385 per month. Then you get your BAS, which is $250, and your BAH, your housing allowance, varies depending upon what part of the country you live in. If you were Navy and you were assigned to San Diego, you'd get $3,100 a month, not taxable. If yeah. you were in the Army and you were at Fort Sill, you would get $1,116 a month because the cost of living is just so different. Mm-hmm. Um, but then once you get beyond your two-year mark, your base pay goes from $4,384 mm-hmm. at, from zero to two years. At the two-year mark, from year two to three, it goes up to $4,900, so about $600 a month pay raise. And then at the three-year mark, you get another pay raise to $5,300, another $500 a month pay raise. And at four years, it goes up to $5,800 a month. So when you start your fourth year, you're getting $1,500 per month more than when you started. That's a pretty good pay raise over the course of four years. I don't have civilian PT experience to draw from, from a financial economic standpoint. But I always felt like the Navy, the military pay salary was pretty good. And certainly some of those jobs that take you overseas or deploy, there's some additional tax breaks that come into those as well. I mean, I've been, I've been looking in, into it as well, comparing different options from our end here, civilian sector to what we're pursuing. And it just seems like it just seems like a no-brainer to us moving forward. I'm better off financially than I ever expected. I, mm-hmm. I used to think uh, this is a reflection of how much the economics of our country have changed over the years. But when I graduated PT school in 93, I used to think, man, if I could make fifty to $60,000 a year, I would be living large. <laughs> <laughs> Economics have changed just a bit uh, since yeah. the early 90s. Just a little bit. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think really a lot of it comes back to being, being careful about what we spend our money on is really what it boils down to. There's mm-hmm. so many things that we can spend money on that really is, is not going to help us get where we want to be five or 10 years down the road. Yeah. I love, I loved how you pointed out that control the controllables. Like that's the easiest thing you could do for yourself to set yourself up for success is just making those decisions. A lot of people feel like it's almost out of their control when if they just reanalyze it and look at it differently, it's, it, it's a pretty simple decision to make if, if you have the right goal in mind, which is mm-hmm. tough sometimes. Yeah. I think 
we we just we have so many things competing for our dollar that it's very easy to to spread those dollars out pretty thin in ways that aren't really going to help us personally and it's just the way it is in our society no nobody's going to there is no organization out there that is trying to make money that's going to make money by having you save more money Mm -hmm. Uh, when I took the, at least I can't really think of one, but when I took, I think it was the Dave Ramsey course, and this was quite a few years ago, but they had a statement that it was one of the large um, retail stores. I don't remember the name, not, not that important, but at that time they were everywhere in all the big malls. And despite the large footprint they had across America, they made more money off the interest from their credit cards than they made off of all their sales annually. And I'm sure that's still going on today. So, you know, one of the, I think one of the biggest things uh, that my wife and I committed to from the financial side early on was if we couldn't pay off the credit card bill month to month, then we were doing something wrong because. We're just paying somebody to buy things then. Uh, so that, to me, that, that's been one of the biggest things for us over the long haul is carrying any sort of balance month to month other than large purchase. Most of us aren't mm-hmm. going to be buying a car or a house outright, but right. so those are probably the exceptions to the rule. But uh, otherwise, that's a vicious cycle to get into. So, so knowing how prolific you are in the kid department with, with five of your own, <laughs> how does that kind of weigh into your financial future? Are you saving for their own college funds? Or are you hoping they kind of do the 25 year career in the military like you or <laughs> let, letting them fight it out for themselves? Or what are your thoughts on the, the five kids? Yeah, I've, I've kind of, um, I've kind of changed my thoughts on that over the years. Um, we started probably when my oldest child, who's 22 right now, when he was about maybe eight years old. No, when he was quite young, actually, uh, he was probably three or four. We started putting money away into uh, 529 plans or Coverdale IRAs. And over the years, maybe because I'm starting to look at more financial advice for people approaching retirement, they comment about there's some negatives to putting too much money away for kids' education Um, because the kids probably aren't putting money away for my retirement when I need to go into (laughs) an assisted living facility. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so we, we saved money for their, uh, through those educational IRAs over the years. And there's some over the last 10 years or so they've, the laws and how you can use money from those funds has changed. For one period, you could only use it for post high school education. Then it's changed. And now you can use it for K through 12 education. That's private school type stuff. And you can transfer it. So it's, uh, it's a little bit uh, not as clear maybe to, to do it that way, but that's how we started out saving money for them. I have some friends that they put put money for their kids in uh, 
uh, what was it? Uh, UGMA account, Uniform Gift for Minors account, I believe it is. And, and th that sort of thing at age 21 or 22, the money automatically becomes that of your kid that you save the money up for. You know, there's some pros and cons. If, if either one of you were you know, my kids and you're responsible adults, I'd be perfectly happy with that. But if you're 22 and you're still hanging out on the pier at PB five nights a week, that's probably not what I had in mind when I put that money away for you. So those are hard things. Uh, you know, some people recommend that you just save the money and keep it under your own umbrella and dole it out when the, when the time is right for their education. But mm -hmm. yeah, I always felt like that that was not necessarily a responsibility of mine as a parent, but it was something that I, I wanted to do to hopefully encourage them to pursue further education after high school. So I think like on that point, I guess looking at us, uh, I know we're a little older than 20, but what would you have given yourself advice as a 20 year old Michael Rosenthal. Ooh. Well, looking back, looking back. I could have used a lot of advice when I was 20. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but I think probably looking back on it, the main thing would be spend more time with family and friends mm. uh, and be intentional about it. That's probably, probably one of the main things. Work's always going to be there. I'm a little bit of a workaholic in some ways. I could, uh, the good part of that is I, I get to do something that I love doing. So it's easy to spend a lot of hours doing it, but sometimes that isn't for the best of uh, relationships, family, friends, that sort of thing. So it's really important, I think, to be intentional about trying to develop relationships that aren't just based off your your work schedule. Mm -hmm. We spend a great deal of our lives working and it's usually those other things. Maybe they're work related. Like for example, I go to a PT conference and, uh, and that's like just filling up my gas tank. I get back from those conferences and I'm like raring to go. Let's mm -hmm. I'm, I'm good for another few months uh, type of thing. So, so I think those would probably be the, the main things as a 20-year-old, I think I, I was probably a lot focused on making money. And yeah, making money is important, but I think probably what's more important is are you going to have, are you going to be wise about spending your money? Because the media gives us a story every day or two about people that have made more money than the three of us collectively will probably ever make. And they're probably much less happy than than us. So uh, I don't think it's about how much money you make. I think it's about being wise with the resources we're given and investing time in other people. I like that a lot. So Absolutely. that's the, uh, the advice to your younger self. If you had to broaden or give some advice or challenge our audience, I guess, to do something to become better at in their own lives, what would you say that one piece of advice would be for our audience? Become better. Yeah. How could you become better at being a human? As an individual or as a PT? Oh, that's a great oh, question. Boy. 
We'll say we'll say as an individual, we'll have a PT one a l- little bit later. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, better as an individual. Yeah. Well, um, I guess for me, it's probably a couple of things. For me, I'm I have a pretty uh, strong Christian faith, so I think that's important um, to give give you some grounding, maybe more so than ever, whatever uh, mm-hmm. uh, your faith is. I think in this day and age of what seems to be a little more chaos than what we are accustomed to, whether that's really the case or it just appears that way because we're bombarded with it. <laughs> you need yeah. You turn on something that has a screen or people talking. Uh, it seems to be in chaos mode frequently. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, that's pretty important, I think. And I think the other thing is not to just borrow a, a popular book title that's been out for a few years now, but developing grit and developing toughness. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was able to. I got to see a lot of that in my uh, grandparents, especially growing up. They worked extremely hard, and they were tough people, Um, tough physically, but tough, probably tougher mentally in the things that they did. And I think that's, I think developing mental toughness is probably one of the most important things we can do because, you know, we know life isn't all that we dreamed it would be oftentimes. And uh, all we can do is kind of take one day at a time. And I think if you have that, a, a foundation of faith and, and some mental toughness, and you put those two together, you're going you're gonna to be able to at least put one foot in front of the other day after day. Mm-hmm. Uh, doesn't mean Monday is going to be necessarily, you know, greatly better than Sunday was, but eventually uh, the clouds are going to part and, and the sunshine's going to come out even here in Nebraska. Uh, <laughs> don't have to live in San Diego all the time to see the sunshine. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it does help. Uh, it's a pretty good place to live. Um, but I think that I think that mental and physical toughness um, is a key part as well. So life isn't always easy, and hopefully, we surround ourselves with with good people and people that were helping one another and helping each other. But sometimes we find ourselves in tough, tough positions and having that, those two things I think are, are important for us. Yeah. I remember in PT school, I kept a, a quote book from professors, from our cohort of everything we had said, memorable moments kind of thing. And I do remember one of the quotes you had was a little pain just provides the context for everything else in life. So Definitely not surprised that you went with like the mental toughness and grit kind of thing. Cause that's signature Rosie right there. Yeah, it does. And I think, uh, <laughs> uh I'm, I'm afraid to see what else might have been. <laughs> I should, I'll, I'll email it to you. I think I said it to yeah. Rao and he was supposed to forward it to everybody, but I'll send it directly to you. Oh, I still have boy. Yeah, you we, got know, some, I, we got some good ones from you. Mm-hmm. There's not necessarily, uh, those were not necessarily all original Rosenthal quotes for sure. Um, I had the benefit of working uh, with some brilliant people in the Navy and, mm-hmm. and uh, spent six years with uh, Navy Special Forces with the SEALs. Mm-hmm. And I learned far more from watching and observing 
uh, some of those things probably than what I contributed to those organizations. And it allowed me to see that the human body is capable of far more than we uh, oftentimes expect it can. So both from the mental uh, or also from the physical side of things, but Hmm. definitely the mental toughness side of things. And it's another area where I think right now um, across our country's landscape, but probably in other countries as well, Mm-hmm. Those aren't those aren't things that are in in a an abundance of supply, I would say. So, yeah, actually, I have this book right here. I think this is what you might have been talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and forth. Yep, very good book. Anyone out there who hasn't read it, please check it out. Yeah, great book. So, um, okay, yeah. So to lead on, I know I know we're running a little long, but man, we we really love having you on here. We're gonna move into our our lightning round. Oh no, one question. One after question this, I want to hit him with. Yeah, yeah, after this one. Um, <laughs> so, what should all PTs be doing more of and and less of? Oh, this is a good one. Oh yeah. What all PTs? Uh, do you mean what they should be doing individually, or what they should be doing in the clinic? Do both. Dude, I want to hear everything you have to say about it. <laughs> <laughs> is there going. one thing in the clinic you just PTs need to stop doing this? Like, a, you know, it could be a modality. It could be whatever you want. Or what should we be doing more of in general? I think, uh, I think BFR is going to be on the list. Yeah, yeah, it should be. <laughs> that should be the answer, right? Um, well, I'm not going to give you an it depends, but. Honor, courage, commitment. <laughs> uh, what PT should be doing more of? I will say exercise. Oh, wow. And that is uh, both personally, me included, uh, I, I need to be exercising more, um, but also our patients, they need to be exercising. Sweaty. The old saying, if it's not physical, it's not therapy, eh, do what you want with that. But I like the, the mindset of exercise is medicine. And uh, I've thought a lot about that over the last year or two with some of the things that are out there in our profession. And I think about some of the places that I've worked and some of the patients that I've worked with, Naval Special Forces being one of them, you know, they didn't need a lot of physical therapy. Why? They beat their bodies like a professional athlete on a regular basis, but they weren't coming into PT all the time. Why? Exercise is medicine. They were physically fit. They didn't need to come see Rosenthal for physical therapy on a regular basis, usually. And, you know, if everybody exercised, people would be a lot better off. Um, Healthcare providers included. We're not necessarily the poster children for uh, great exercise, right? Mm -hmm. We've got plenty of our own physical maladies to deal with. But I think exercise is is really the, the forgotten thing. Um, in a lot of ways. And I think sometimes we don't rely upon that because patients have different expectations. Patients oftentimes don't like exercise, right? They like things that feel good. And with most things, if we keep doing what feels good, we're probably neglecting what needs to be done oftentimes. So exercise, exercise, exercise. And what needs to be done less or what? Now that's a, boy, that's a sticky subject. Um, 
uh, I would say chasing the latest gizmo or method that's out there. You know, we've got, it's a, I think it's a challenging thing because we want to be evidence-based or evidence-informed, but there's different fields of training or fields of thought that have some brilliant people that are working on those things, but there's not a lot of research behind them. So how do you balance incorporating that when there's not much evidence versus something else? So I think that's one of the challenges that we have to be careful about. Um, Dry needling is a good example. Maybe not so much in California since it's not part of the Practice Act, but dry needling, different sorts of exercise and intervention techniques, manual therapy stuff. How much manual therapy do we really need to do? Combining it with other things that are going to make the patient responsible and independent for their care. Uh, I think that's one of the key things we have to get back to. We're not... I think sometimes we like to consider ourselves healers, if you will. We want to make the patient better. I made the patient better. My patients get better. I want to give the patient the tools to make themselves better. I don't want the patient to become reliant upon me. I love my patients, even the ones that are difficult. I love the exchange we get to have, the learning I get from them. But I don't want them to feel like they've got to come in and see me once or twice a week for six months or once a month for a year or whatever. That's to me, that's me failing in making them independent, uh, which is what they really need. So there's a saying, trust, but verify. I kind of like it. I kind of like changing it up a little bit of being the, uh, we should be a critical consumer of all things related to providing patient care. And so George Davies used to, uh, has used this statement, test, don't guess. And I think that goes to some of the things that we should be doing less of. We shouldn't just be, you know, throwing all these things at the patient with, without being a critical observer of what, what's really happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think we have to question ourselves if we really want to provide the best care possible and not just do a bunch of manual therapy because we learned this manual therapy technique from the manual therapy gurus Mm -hmm. type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can attest to that. Like just over the past six months being in residency, I find myself used to still on occasion throwing everything at the wall, seeing what sticks, um, slowly getting more specific with my treatments as to why I'm doing those things and for what reasons. Yeah. Oh, that was yeah, and I, you know, I think uh, I, I say this every year when I'm teaching classes, I honestly don't know that I could say with a straight face that I have ever given a patient the absolute best treatment plan possible for them. Every time I go back and look at what I gave them, I'm like, oh, I forgot that. Or what was I thinking? Why did I give them that? Yeah, yeah. So there's always something that I, I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I need to do a better. I obviously need to do a better job myself, but I just feel like there's always something that we could be doing better. Mm-hmm. And if we really think that we've got it all figured out, then I think that's when we're probably our most dangerous and our 
probably right. least effective as a healthcare provider. Well said. That gives us some confidence as new grads knowing <laughs> not going to have all the answers day one, not 20, 40, 30 years into it. You know, we're not going to have all the answers. Yeah, I think I, I see see the things you guys are doing as new PTs. And I feel like I feel like you guys are way ahead of where I was as a new PT coming out in the 93 time frame. So, yeah, you guys are in much better shape. Hopefully our patients are in much better shape than as well. Yeah, that's the goal, right? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, Rose, you survived the interview. We're going to get into uh -huh. a real real quick lightning round, four questions. Just kind of a fun way to end the, the interviews that we do on this podcast. So go ahead and start with the first one, Jordan. All right. So you said you wanted to work out more. Just touching on that. Um, if you walked into a gym now that they're reopening soon, if there was one piece of equipment in there, what would it be for you and why? <laughs> what's that what's the joke uh it, oh golly uh it, it would be uh just a barbell with weights ah love standard. it standard i like right. that yep, no bs it. approach to strength and conditioning i like it i was <laughs> gonna say it i was gonna say a leg extension machine just to fire people up but <laughs> <laughs> really, really work on that patella you know yeah <laughs> the patella like forces <laughs> I like it. Okay. He's going all the forces on the patella. Okay. Round two is the finance question. What do you consistently blow your budget on? And what is your least favorite thing to pay for? So what do you overspend on and what do you hate to pay for? Overspend. Man, I don't overspend on much. Bought a Jeep a couple of years ago. Probably overspent on that. Okay. Um, <laughs> otherwise, I would say uh, I would overspend on sporting event tickets mm -hmm. things related to sports activities and the least favorite thing to pay for haircuts <laughs> <laughs> you, you you pay for those yeah. <laughs> love it <laughs> um, <laughs> nah, least, least favorite thing bad food mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. That is the worst. I think there's, there's so many restaurants out there, and I just, I just don't find too many that are better than what my wife can make in my own house. So, All right. Something I really, really admire uh, from you as a mentor is even after all these years and all your experience, you're still thinking you could do better and that you don't know it all because uh, that's, that's huge um, as far as PTs and just personal growth goes. So currently... What is something that you're working on to become better in at life? I'm trying to read, read a lot more, both science content as well as business and leadership content. So I'm, whether it's reading books or listening to podcasts, I'm doing a lot more of that. So that and my own physical health pursuits, trying to I don't need to be at my college football plane weight anymore. Uh, so that that's probably the other pursuit that I have at this stage. There's not much demand for a, a 50 year old inside linebacker in Omaha right now. You got to put the Mountain Dew down. That's the one thing. It's the Mountain Dew. It's killing no. me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. Uh. Final question. <laughs> As a former military man, I'm sure you've traveled to many countries, many states, many bases. 
What is the one country, state, or base that you would absolutely never go back to? Oh, oh. Iraq. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I can see why. Yeah. How long were you out there? If I'm going to take care of the people that I was taking care of, I'd go there in a minute, but yeah, I ain't yeah. going there for any other reason. Uh, I was there for about four months working right. with special forces. Yeah. Okay. It was a very interesting place, but not a place yeah. I prefer to go to. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then you, you came back because your wife, she was giving birth during that time. Is that what brought you back? Yeah. So uh, fortunately, they allowed me to come back uh, about two weeks before her due date. So okay. um, yeah, probably one of the toughest things about being on active duty is the time you're away from family. And as a PT, you're not away from your nuclear family that much. Uh, I wasn't away from my wife that much. I traveled quite a bit. Uh, for my job, but not for long, long periods. Um, one exception, though, was when I went to Iraq. I was gone for four months during the middle end of our fifth child. Mm. Uh, so that's a little bit of a stressful period for a family with with four young kids. And she was in Hawaii at the time, and I was two-thirds of the way around the globe. So Things like that are, are a little bit stressful times, but, and then the other thing is if you've got a family that are not in close proximity to where you're at, uh, that creates a little bit of challenge as well. But, uh, yeah, Iraq would be a place that, if it opens up for tourism, save your money. (laughs) (laughs) Not going to be stamping that passport anytime soon for Iraq. (laughs) (laughs) oh man well i think we'll wrap the show up there again if there's any links or um, ways that our audience can find you um you can i guess give them your email or kind of if you have any i don't know if you have a social media presence at all rosenthal but if you have any way for people to reach out to you is there a channel that you would direct them to anything like that oh the best thing is just just shoot me an email i i'm pretty good about responding if you've got questions i i love talking about military PT. You know, I was very fortunate and, and uh, anytime I can share information or uh, connect people to folks that are in the middle of it right now to give you maybe a, the most current information, I'm, I'm glad to do so. It's, it's a great opportunity to serve a, a great group of people that take care of us. And I would I would recommend it to anybody if, if they have the opportunity. It does require some personal and uh, family relationship sacrifices, but it's a unique experience and uh, probably one that, that you will never regret. So, so just shoot me an email, uh, M as in Mike Rosenthal, PT at gmail.com, or you can find me on the University of Nebraska Medical Center DPT program page, which is M. Rosenthal at UNMC for University of Nebraska Medical Center dot edu. So either of those should get to me and uh, I'll try to respond quickly. Awesome. 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 Well, right. I can attest for me and Jordan sitting in your MSK and differential diagnosis classes so many years ago. It's kind of nice to turn the, the table on you and ask some questions to you after <laughs> we, right. we try to go through your tests all the time. So 
it's good to just sit down and have a chat in a informal setting so i definitely appreciate mm. you coming on and taking the time with us today yeah you're welcome keep up the good work keep having fun all right thank Love you mike you. all right thanks yeah. again Thanks for listening to the Two Five Physios podcast, where we bring the fire mindset to the physio lifestyle.